And now, Father, in this noon hour, would you, by your kindness and your grace, let your word go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. It's a delight to be with you all this afternoon. I'm reading today from Robert Alter's translation of Exodus chapter 3. Here's the story. And Moses was herding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he drove the flock into the wilderness and came to the mountain of God to Horeb. And the Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush, and he saw and looked. The bush was burning with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses thought, let me pray, turn aside, that I may see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. And the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Come no closer here. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place that you are standing on is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt. In its outcry because of its taskmasters, I have heard, for I know its pain. And I've come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from that land to a goodly and a spacious land, to a land that's going to flow with milk and with honey. Skipping a few verses. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring out the Israelites from Egypt? And he said, For I will be with you. And this is the sign that for you that I myself have sent you. When you bring the people out from Egypt, you shall worship me on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Look, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Ehye, Esher, Ehye. I will be who I will be. And he said, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, Ehye, I will be, has sent me to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, stories have the ability to capture our imaginations. Just last night, my wife was reading to little Mary Grace, our two-year-old, in her bed, the story, as she calls it, of the Glinch, or the Grinch. She loves it. Ever since Christmas, it's all she wants to hear is the story of the Grinch. Stories grab us. They give us insight into the ways of our world and the ways of people that simple statements of facts are unable to provide. I started reading George Eliot's Middlemarch toward the end of last summer. It was on my mental to-do list for months, finish Eliot. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I just finished it last month. It took me forever. Now, the BBC had made a film of Middlemarch, and I told myself, I'm not going to watch the film until I finish reading the book. There was also a book that had been published by a New Yorker author by the name of Rebecca Mead entitled My Life in Middlemarch. I wanted to read that book too, but I wouldn't let myself until I finished reading Eliot's actual novel. But when I finally finished a month ago, I was so taken back and moved by Eliot's use of language her penetration into, for lack of a better term, the character of the characters, their complexity, their development, and the storyline that really was completely satisfying. I understand now why people say that George Eliot's Middlemarch is probably the best novel in the English language. I, I get it. 
And when I was done, what happened? I lost all interest in watching the movie. I started into Mead's book, only to quickly put it down. I just, I wasn't interested. It's hard to come down from the Himalayas of George Eliot's Middlemarch to the Red Mountain of a BBC movie or a New Yorker journalist's attempt to make Eliot applicable. But it's the power of a story, isn't it? A story that doesn't help me escape reality, that gives me a more profound sense of a lived life. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in relationships? along with all the psychological dimensions and complications of our human experience. Good novels, good stories. You students, you read these. Now, they're windows into the body and they're windows into the soul. You know, it's not without reason that God loves a good story too. In fact, God is a great storyteller and teller of stories. The Bible is loaded with narratives and stories. Now, the Bible has all kinds of literary genre, all kinds of literature. Uh, think wise aphorisms, poetry, laws, didactic literature like Paul. But isn't it fascinating that the dominant literary feature of the Bible is that it's a story, and it has a storied character. Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, offered a famous lecture early in the 20th century entitled The Strange New World of the Bible. Barth had found so much of the theology that he learned in the German, German university setting, it was just unfitting to help him preach. He was raising questions like, what do I say as a pastor? Or how do I speak for God? And I think those are pretty good pastoral questions to raise. And Bart felt unequipped to answer them. So in a moment of genius, I guess, Bart thought, well, how about I give the Bible a try? And he went and he looked into the Bible. And guess what he found? That the Bible was not a mirror of our better moral instincts. The Bible isn't primarily a guidebook for the betterment of humanity, for the elevating of humanity to its highest potential. Bart's discovery was that the Bible is first and foremost a book about God. In it, God speaks. The Bible has God as its source, God as its subject matter. And when it turns to the attention of humanity, it does so from God's perspective and God's love. The Bible is a book about God. And that's what makes the Bible so completely different than George Eliot in Middlemarch. Because the subject matter of the Bible is not primarily Mr. Casabon or Dorothea Brooks, or Will Ladislaw, as fascinating as those figures are. Rather, the Bible is a book about God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, seen and unseen. God has chosen by His grace and in the power of His Spirit to reveal His Son to us in the frailty of these human words that are written in our Bibles, the stories of our Bible, simple and yet profound. So the Bible is God's megaphone of revelation. Hey world, hey humanity, do you want to know who God is? Do you want to enter into that most important question that humanity can ask, who is God? Then we look to the scriptures and we look to be healed. One of my sons, who will go unnamed, but he looks a lot like a guy sitting right there somewhere, when he was much younger than he is now, he would always ask for the burning tree story to be read. 
What should we read tonight, kids? Well, how about the burning tree for the 100th time? Okay. And not a bad choice. Because this story, this, this narrative in Exodus, it ranges somewhere near the heart of the Bible's revealing of God's identity. In this wonderful story in the Bible, in this encounter between God and Moses, God pulls back the veil to let us know who he is. This narrative that you heard just read is God putting his best foot forward when he wants to let us know who he is and how we can name him and identify him. In other words, when a lineup of gods is put before us, how can we pick our God out of the lineup and say, that's him? We know him according to his character. Answer, Exodus 3. We have to step back, though. We know about the book of Genesis. There in Genesis, God is the creator. He made all things from the beneficence of his own being. He did this not because of anything that was pressuring him to do so. He did it simply because of the overwhelming character of his love. I don't know if you think about that, but it's overwhelming. The reason there is a material world is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit and an eternal communion of love allowed that love to spill over and create the space and time necessary for our being. It's incredible. But we also learn in Genesis that you and I have an intractable problem. All of us are Adam and Eve. Every one of us would eat that fruit if offered every time. We're sinners. Our problem with God reaches down to the whole of our existence. We're off and crooked. We're bent. Even our good deeds aren't really good in a redeeming sense, and humanity is in need. Even humanity in Genesis builds a tower to try to make its way to God. But out of all this mess, God calls a man named Abraham. And he promises Abraham, through your seed, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. And it's incredible, because Abraham's an old man, and his aged wife is not a young lady anymore. There's a reason why their firstborn son is named Isaac or Laughter. It's a big cosmic joke that Abraham and, and Sarah have a child. But it's through this cosmic joke that God is going to redeem the world and bless the entirety of the nations. And what happens by the end of, of the book of Genesis? There's Abraham's great-grandson sitting on the throne of Egypt by the power and the gift of God's grace in his life, making good on the promise to Abraham. What's he doing? Here's Abraham's offspring blessing and redeeming the entire world through Egypt. It's remarkable. But the scene gets problematized quickly. You know, Joseph passes off the scene. Now he's a forgotten entity. And there are all these children of Abraham enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And the question arises, given all that's already passed, God, who are you? God, can you be trusted? But in the shadows of these very dark historical moments of Israel's existence, God is at work. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. And God's face never smiles so brightly in the Old Testament as it shines right here in the third chapter of Exodus. In the ordinary course of Moses' comfortable and humdrum existence outside of Egypt, Moses meets God. 
His sheep find their way to Horeb. I don't know how that happened, but there they are. The sheep right at the basin of Mount Sinai. And Moses sees a bush, a burning bush, but not yet being burnt up. You know, I have to imagine between us this afternoon that Moses probably used more colorful language in that moment than, pray tell, I must now go see this. Now, I know I shouldn't read into the biblical narratives that way, but I'm just saying, if, if I had my sheep at the basin of a mountain, and I saw a flaming bush whose leaves stayed green and the wood didn't char, I think I would say something other than pray tell. But pray tell he did, and he followed the sight. Stepping into that moment that would forever change the course of Moses' life, and not only Moses' life, this moment that we just heard read is going to change the course of the entire world. Take your sandals off, Moses. This is holy ground, Moses. Don't come any closer, Moses, because I'm God. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did Moses do in this encounter? What all of us would do. He hid his face. You know, these encounters between God and humanity are often matters of life and death. I mean, just ask Uzzah. Poor guy reaches out to grab the Ark of the Covenant. Boom, he's dead. And yet God continues to speak. I've heard their cries, Moses. Their cries haven't gone unnoticed. And I'm coming down to rescue them. Do you know the last time God came down that particular language in all of the five books of Moses was back at the Tower of Babel? That's the last time God came down. Do you remember what happened after that? God's coming down then was a moment of judgment. But this time, God's not coming down for judgment. He's coming down for salvation. He's coming down to redeem. Hey, Moses, I'm coming down for my people. I'm getting off of my sovereign throne. And he's on the move for you and for me. If I can use the language of the Jesus Storybook Bible, well-worn in our home, God is on a great rescue mission for his people and for the world. And it all begins right here with Moses. But Moses has a question. It's a question, by the way, that some of you will recall. It's a question that, God, that Jacob asks God way back in Genesis 32 in that strange and bizarre encounter by the Jabbok River in the middle of the night. You remember Jacob wrestling with God? That story still captures my imagination. Jacob with God in a full Nelson won't let God go until he blesses him. And do you remember all that occurred, how the blessing actually occurs? Well, God changes his name. Hey, what's your name? My name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a liar. I'm a wily one. And God changes his name forever. No, that's not who your identity is. Your identity is Israel. You're striven with me. You haven't let go of my promises. But there's a part in this narrative that's often forgotten. It's kind of a throwaway line in Genesis 32. Jacob, right after that, then says these words. Well, what is your name? You remember that? God had just changed Jacob's name, and now Jacob says, well, what's your name? And this is what God says. Why do you ask me my name? What is that to you? And then the story just moseys on along. 
But the logic here from Genesis as it moves into Exodus is crucial at this point. It wasn't time yet for the fullness of God's name to be revealed. Jacob's moment is not that moment in the redemptive story. It doesn't mean that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't know the divine name, but they didn't know the fullness of that name as it would be linked to this particular moment in the redemptive drama. That moment of revelation had to wait for Moses, and now we're here. And Jacob's question is asked again, but now it's on the lips of Moses. What is your name? And God gives the answer. And when God answers Moses, the plates of the universe shift. I am who I am. You know, admittedly, a lot of ink has been spilt on the divine name. This phrase here. Here's your Hebrew lesson for the day. Ehyeh, esher, ehyeh. I am who I am. What is given as an answer to Moses' question, it might appear at first glance as a kind of divine cat and mouse game, or maybe a a biblical who's on first episode. But I'm convinced that God's answer to Moses is not an act of concealment. This is a moment of revelation. He's letting Moses know who he really is. And if you don't mind, I'm going to stick with Robert Alter's translation because I think it gets at it best. Not necessarily, I am who I am, but I will be who I will be. In other words, God is letting Moses know that his name, his character, will be revealed in the redemptive moments that he's about to experience. Who are you, God? What does the divine name mean? Well, Moses, you'll know who I am when the river turns a dark shade of red. When the croaking of frogs ring in your ear. When you hug your firstborn sons while the Egyptians weep over theirs. You'll know who I am when you come to the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind you and that big massive river in front of you. And when my cloud descends down and blocks Pharaoh's army. And when I tell Moses to shove you to the side because I'm going to fight for you. And then when you cough on the dust as you pass through, safe passage, through that Red Sea to the other side. And when you pick up an Egyptian helmet that washes up on the edge of the seashore. Then you're going to know who I am. I am who I will be. You're going to know my identity when I redeem you, Moses, and your people. Who is God? God is our Savior It's not a coincidence that Jesus' last statement in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says these words, I made them to know your name, and I will continue to make it known. Flip a page, and we're into Holy Week in John's Gospel. God's name, God's identity is revealed most clearly and definitively in those moments when he saves or redeems his people. Exodus in the Old Testament and cross in the New. You know, during this season of Lent, we're just in. Perhaps you're asking the most important question of your existence as a human being. I hope you're asking it. And I hope you're asking this question 
whether you're a Christian or not. Who is God? And when the Bible raises this question, it tells us a story. Israel redeemed from Egypt and Jesus hanging on a cross. Who are you, God? Well, why don't you come to the edge of the Red Sea and I'll show you who I am. And if you want a fuller and complete picture of my identity, walk with me outside a city to a nondescript hill and see my son hanging between heaven and hell. If you want to know who I am, then go no further. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.